Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling themes in some of our favorite geeky properties. Most of the time. (laughs) Most of the time. I am Chris. I'm Brittany. And this week is actually going to be a special feed drop. We were recently invited to come on the TV Tray podcast, going through the different seasons of Avatar The Last Airbender, and he invited us on to talk a little bit about season three and some of the interesting things in it. So we thought we would drop that into our feed so you can hear a little bit about that discussion. Yeah, so we'll just go straight into their episode. Hello, binge watch some film addicts. Welcome to another episode of the TV Trey Podcast. I am your host, Trey Anthony. Returning with us, we have Ariana Victoria. Hey. Brogan Wassell. Hello. And joining us for the first time is the podcast Geek Between the Lines, Chris and Brittany. How are you guys doing? Great. How are you? Very glad to be here. Awesome. Glad to have you guys here. Uh, today's episode is going to be the final season of Avatar The Last Airbender, book three, Fire, which... I mean, it's in the title. It is fire. It is absolutely (laughs) spitting fire. I love it. Like, it's like, I I think I love season two's ending better, but season three is just like, you can't, it almost, like, I I was one of those people like, yeah, I wanted season four, but every time I watch season three, I'm like, you know what? Season four, we don't need that. (laughs) We don't need that. I mean, what, what, what could you do? Right? That would be better than season three. Like, how could you improve on it? Exactly. It's, when people ask me what is the like few perfect TV shows, yep, I always point them to Avatar: The Last Airbender season three ending. It's just it's a perfect like. There's no like, th- you there's a couple things here there that you might want to tweak or change, but nothing where it's like the structure is perfect, mm-hmm. the characterizations perfect, everything is just. And hold that thought <laughs> yes. uh, real quick. Before we get started, uh, one, this is a spoiler heavy, so who's never not seen it, that's your fault for listening. <laughs> uh, uh, second, we are going to go through uh, different recaps each and go from there. So who want, So answer the question. So Chris and Brittany, what we normally do is we just go into like 30 seconds each of what did you think of it when you first saw it? Does it change anything now? So on and so forth. So uh, who wants to go okay, first? Cool. Please, not all at once. My <laughs> God. Okay. Oh my. I'll go. I'll totally go. All right, go for it. Um, so I have been sucked into the show since it first aired in 2005, I believe. Like, you know, it's been a while. Um, followed the show all throughout, you know, my entire middle school, freshman year of high school you know, mm-hmm. life. And I remember the night that the finale was going to come on, my parents had this big old bonfire at the beach thing in like Huntington Beach or whatever. And I ditched it to stay home (laughs) to watch this by myself, all by myself at home. And I I laughed, I screamed, I cried. And I was like, oh my God, like this couldn't be topped. It was the perfect ending that I wanted. Oh my God, that's awesome. All right, Brogan, what do you got? My, My whole story around Avatar season three was kind of fascinating because I couldn't get because I was overseas at the time in the Philippines I could not get the earliest season of season three are you serious no so I had to bootleg it ah. it got so <laughs> and then here's the thing was I, I was around the same time as I was like starting to get into middle school and it was like kind of seen as uncool to like watch cartoons right and things like that obviously that's dumb because um, <laughs> now I, I get older I was like man everybody seems to love it 
Um, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, I, my, I would like be on my computer watching this stuff or things like that. And then my sister would come in, like come into the room and I would like close it really quick. So she actually thought I was looking at porn at the time. <laughs> but I, but it's funny. She like confronted me about it and I was like, okay, I have to admit I've been watching Avatar Last Airbender. And she's like, what the heck is that? And I, to- I told her and showed it to her. And it's funny because my brother, he got glimpses of it. And then ages later, he went back and watched. He's like, dude, why don't you tell me about this show? I was like, I did at the time, but you didn't care. That's um, great. Oh, my God. But uh, needless to say, every time I was watching it, it was always bootleg versions online or okay. whatnot. Like, I get it through Pirate Bay or um, Veo Video and things like that. And I was like, oh, man. And it's funny because there's like a couple of, it was a couple of my friends. And when one time my friend was like, hey, you ever watched Avatar? I was like, no way. And he's like, you want to watch the new season? And I was like, where are you watching it? And it was like, I have a high like res version. I was like, oh my gosh, because it's bootleg. Yeah. And so we'd all go to Cranmore to his house and watch it. And we were like, it was like our little secret. And slowly over time, I started running into more people at school who are like shy about wanting to admit, because we're almost, we we're almost in eighth grade at that point, hmm. right? Shy about wanting to admit that we were all watching Avatar. Yeah. <laughs> It's like the unspoken truth. Yeah. That's crazy. And very, I mean, I'm not one to bootleg, but the, f- I mean, you know, desperate times calls for desperate metrics. Oh, so yeah, totally. I, I'm not even mad. <laughs> uh, uh, Chris, Brittany, whoever wants to go first, what were your thoughts when you first saw it? Yeah, so I didn't actually see it until I think it was probably around 2010. So a oh, bit. Wow after the fact and it was great obviously i saw it when it was like streaming on netflix and started watching it got super into it but then i was like my sister and brother-in-law are gonna love this too and so i was watching it and then they started watching it with me too and then i already i had to like wait for them to catch up to watch the end so we left the last four episodes like I didn't see the ending until they had fully caught up and so I basically watched it all twice and then the ending once and it was amazing because it's amazing nice all right Chris what about you yeah uh I I also did not watch Avatar when it first came out this was probably about when I was in high school early college and I wasn't watching I think a lot of tv at all at that point um and so I actually was one of the few people who watched the movie first. Uh, what? <laughs> which obviously is not about the uh, the, the third book. But uh, yeah, I, you know, I watched it because I was like, oh, I heard this is about a good show. And then it was a bad movie and it didn't get me to watch the show any quicker. Um, but eventually I got into it uh, and I started watching the show on DVD. Um, and yeah, they, I mean, it, it was so amazing. And and. At this point, Korra was already out. It hadn't finished yet, but it had the first couple seasons out. And I don't even think I got right into Korra because I was just so content with the way that it ended with Mm -hmm. the end of the third season where it just, uh, it wrapped everything up so well. It was such a, a, a great show that was, you know, doing such new and interesting things, especially for a cartoon. And it was able to pull off all the things it was setting up for these, these last three years. And so, yeah, I, I, I loved it and, and 
I'm so glad that we we're able to talk about it with other fans. <laughs> yes. I first off, what movie are you talking about? I don't I don't remember an Avatar. Yeah, movie. I, I don't remember <laughs> an Avatar <laughs> movie coming. Nah, you're talking about that fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> I must commend you though. I have never heard of a fan that has first watched the movie and then later got into the show and loved the show. You were the first person I've known that actually gave the show a chance after that terrible movie which we do not speak of. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the name must not that must not be named. I love it. Uh, for me, I I'm gonna be honest. Uh, I remember 99% of all Avatar episodes except one, which was um, the backstory of Avatar Roku and Fire Lord Sozin's conflict. So when I rewatched it again in 2020 in like March, I like was watching it on TV, and so when uh, Iroh tells Zuko, like, your grandfather was so, your great grandfather was Sozin and Roku. And, like, I have dropped my popcorn. It's not even a joke. I <laughs> dropped it. I'm like, wait, wait, how long has this been a thing? Did I miss something? I was in so much shock. And it made even more sense in terms of his internal conflict. And I, it was, just, it was like a just jaw dropping moment, like 10 years later. Uh, but when I first saw the show, when I was, I think I was like like eighth grade, ninth grade, same as yeah, Brogan. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't stop watching the ending because it's an it's a movie length, it's like an hour and forty six minutes or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just the one thing that I would always turn back to was the the final Agni Kai. It's just so well the music, the choreography, like in terms of the fight style, the uh, the, the coloring, mm-hmm. everything about it was beautiful. I think season three is just the epitome of what happens. It's a good example of what happens when the villain wins. And you still have to pursue despite being defeated. Because I think in some animes, like kind of like Full Metal, you mm-hmm. see like the bad guy win. We talked about this in the last episode with Connor. You kind of see the bad guy win for like 45 minutes and then he gets defeated. This one's a whole season's worth of like the bad guys won and you have you still have to get back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that was Avatar Season 3 for me. Our topics <laughs> include uh, Topic 1, Propaganda and Indoctrination. Two, Katara's Revenge. And three, Zuko's Forgiveness from Iroh, according to the Prodigal Son Parable. So we're going to jump into topic one with propaganda indoctrination. Uh, for those who need a little bit of remembrance, we see this with Aang, uh, who's in disguise as a Fire Nation uh, student. He visits the Fire Nation school, and he realizes just how twisted and controlled their propaganda is to show that the Fire Nation was the victim and how the war is justified. And in many ways, we see this in, you know, World War II with the Japanese Empire, with Hitler, uh, even with the United States to a large extent, you know, the use of propaganda and altering um, history to fit your worldview. Or, you know, as Captain Price of Call of Duty says, history is written (laughs) by the victor. Love that game. Uh, So, yeah, let's just jump into this topic. And, yeah, who wants to kind of add on first? Sure, I'll, I'll... I'll take the bullet this time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say it's probably the thing that makes this season so good is the fact that it's constantly challenging conventions, right? Mm. Not just within the realm of like, oh, hey, this is propaganda, clearly, or story elements and structure, but it's like the reverse The Last Jedi, where it's like it actually introduces new elements while challenging your preconceived notions that you have of what's going to happen, right? Hmm. So it's fulfilling certain things like, oh yeah, you know the Fire Nation's bad. So when you see them with their propaganda, you're like, oh, of course, 
of course the Fire Nation would be doing propaganda. Why wouldn't they, right? Mm. It's kind of a one-to-one to Japan and World War II, if you think of it that way. But the thing that's really cool is it's like the kids themselves, when he's hanging out with them, it's like they're not, they're not bad. They're not evil. Right. right? They're not... They're still on that stage of innocence. Yeah, they're still on that stage of innocence. And even the dance that they're doing with each other, he's like kind of seeing the two sides to stuff. It's kind of reminiscent of later in the series as Zuko, he has to sort of rediscover, mm. right, his firebending, and they go to see the Sun Temple. And he, when the two dragons, they do the dragon dance, and the two dragons shoot the fire up into the giant, like, uh, tubular, like, uh, whirlwind. Aang... And him, they both say, like, I understand, right? Because for most of Aang's life, he's only thought of the Fire Nation as evil. He has never been able to see them as anything more than completely what they are, right? Mm-hmm. Of, or, or at least from attacking him, wanting to destroy him, wanting to kill him. And now he seems like, no, there is, there's a Fire Nation within the Fire Nation that can be pulled from this. Sort of like Korra, right? Mm. The light within the dark that could be found. And... It's kind of one of those things that's kind of a it's it's interesting where like the Fire Nation has their propaganda, but it doesn't start to that like lies can only last for so long. Right. They have to be challenged at some point. And what does Zuko do when he goes to his dad? Right. He gets all that he wanted. Right. Again, going on the what, you know, challenging your how you think it's going to go. It's not going to go the way you think it's going to go. Yeah. He gets everything he wants. He gets respect from his father, his sister. May loves him a ton. Now he has a girlfriend. He has all these things working for him. He's like, but it's not the truth, Mm. right? Right. So when he goes in and challenges his dad and is basically like, everything about the Fire Nation, we don't spread our culture. They hate us, right? Mm. He just like throws down. And that's like the beginning, in my opinion, of the like that's when the, the show like obviously it's really good <laughs> even up until then but that's when season three like really starts to head into like this is making it like the greatest show of all time because it's showing like it, it's a fulfillment in a way of not the way you think it's going to go you think oh ang's going to go in there and defeat the fire nation kind of when you're a kid but the true victory is having somebody within the Fire Nation, which is Zuko, challenging the Fire Nation itself, mm-hmm. right? Challenging the lies, right? And saying, no, here's the truth, and I'm yeah. going to bring it, you know? So No, I, I'm 100%. It was very well said. Uh, Chris and Brittany, do you guys have anything to add to that? Yeah, so I love the episode where Aang goes in as a Fire Nation kid to school because, I mean, they do really good world building in general for the show, but having that episode and having that, like, added complexity to the world and to show, like, this is how society operates. Like, it just makes it so much more rich, so much more believable and... Yeah, absolutely love that. We we even did an episode just on like education and learning within Avatar World, um, and we, we talked about this a bit. But I think it just yeah, it, it makes the show so good because it's showing that indoctrination and propaganda are embedded in education. And I think like 
every single country in the world, I would argue, like primary education is a form of indoctrination. It just, it is, you know, even stories like, you know, you, you all were talking about World War II, but like, it's still happening today, very much so. Ideas of, yeah, let's talk about George Washington, the first president of the United States. And it's like, yeah, he enslaved like, 300 people on his property, you know, and, you know, oh, we'll talk about his dentures, and some of those dentures were teeth from enslaved people uh, that he took, which is horrific, but we don't want to have the legacy of our country be built on these things, and so we ignore it, we don't talk about it that way, we just focus on, like, the heroic, the good things, you know, and, you know, oh, it was absolutely necessary to end World War II to drop these atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, that's just 100% factually inaccurate. But it's still narratives that we teach in school because, you know, countries want to be on the right side of things. They want to be the the heroes in the world and it's hard to get loyalty from people if if you tell the truth about about reasons behind things and and really dark dark things that happen um and violent things that happen and so i think having that in in the episode in avatar and like especially for i mean obviously we're adults and we love the show but like for kids to see that and to start to understand how some of these things work i think is just so important and so brilliant yeah absolutely uh, one of the things that really came out to me was was how um, the way that education seems to be working in this Fire Nation school is about adopting and, and fostering this concept of Fire Nation supremacy. And one of, one of the things that stuck out to me in my most recent rewatch was the use of the term the March of Civilization, which they mm-hmm. have in their pledge, which they talk about in their history, how, you know, Sozin going and fighting the quote-unquote air nation armies uh, was part of the march of civilization of the Fire Nation. And this is the exact same kind of language that's been used historically by nations all over the world, including the United States, for, um, you know, uh, colonialism, imperialism, genocide, which is exactly what the Fire Nation is doing. And so it's really smart in, in yeah, showing how these, uh, these narratives are part of a system. And it doesn't even necessarily mean that, like, this teacher knows better. They're, you know, this is 100 years in. They were indoctrinated the same way. Um, and one of the things that I think that this, this episode does really well is that this is the first time that you spend a lot of time in the Fire Nation. And up until this point in the series, the Fire Nation, had, other than the main characters, has almost entirely been seen as soldiers who are in helmeted, uh, you know, stormtrooper-like garb where you don't see any faces. And so now going to the Fire Nation and seeing in particular how they talk about themselves and their national story and their identity, um, you're doing this at the same time that you're seeing kids' faces, you're seeing adults' faces, you're you're seeing mm. both issues on the individual and the systemic level that show that this is a, a wider society and culture than just invading armies that we've seen thus far. Very strong points. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, oh, what do you got? 
Yeah, to go off of what you were just saying, I think season three, the first half up until, um, like, you know, the Nightmares episode right before the big battle, um, they did such a great and I think very necessary job of painting a picture of the Fire Nation and showing the humanity Hmm. in it and how it's not just... Yeah, yeah, like it's not just the soldiers, it's not just the military, it's not just the warlords that are taking over Omashu and all these kingdoms and the Earth Kingdom and you know, and doing all of that. It's it's little kids that don't know how to dance. It's poor people that live on a polluted river that the, the army yes. is totally yes. destroying. Yes, the Painted Lady episode. Oh, exactly. Yeah. It's so um Or like when the kids go to the beach, the Royal Fire Nation kids, and they realize, wow, we're not the coolest people around. They don't even know us. And the villain of that episode mm-hmm. is just some douchebag named Chan, you know, when you see all the other... Chad Chad Yeah. And it's like, in every single episode, it's not like a big bad villain like in the military. I mean, sure, you have the assassin that Zuko hired to take Aang out on the side, but it's like, who's the villain in the headband episode? It's just the principal. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. we even get Hama, someone who's not even Fire Nation, who's a villain in the first half of it Mm -hmm. with her bloodbending. And like, you see all of these other little pieces that kind of paint a picture of what the Fire Nation really is and the beautiful culture that it has Mm -hmm. that Zuko did say it hasn't shared that side of it with the world because it's yeah. just all about war and domination and genocide and taking over the others. Yeah. And I think it was very necessary to put that in the show before even the eclipse and before the ending too. Yeah. And it's funny you should say that because I saw a small documentary unrelated to this whole episode a while back. Just um, someone was able to get a tour into North Korea and they were able to get footage of the time at like the schools where like the kids are actually like singing songs and like embracing their cultural heritage not in the communist uh you know dictatorship way but like in like the history the way they dress and everything and it's you know literally like what you just said the world only knows it as like this dark military dictatorship you know you die if you speak wrong but there there are these people who are in that society or in that country that are genuine good people it's not necessarily or entirely their fault that they are believing that what they do because it's all been heavily pushed into their mindset that this is what our enemies are like and this is why we're so great uh and i remember hearing uh, a dramatization of the story of dietrich bonhoeffer who tried to assassinate hitler with a group of people um in the dramatization him and his uh, brother-in-law are talking about like you know we're going to restore germany not to what it is now but the true germany that the people know it is and you know it's it when you see when you read about history like that or when you see a show like this it really i, I don't think it humanitizes the enemy it doesn't necessarily as more humanitizes the people that the enemy has enslaved uh whether that's indoctrination or actual slavery or you know, th- there is something deeper than what you see on the outside. I'm not saying like, oh, we need to be kind to the ones that are trying to kill us in the sense of like, let's not go to war. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying like the citizens have the better um, representation of what that culture is compared to those that are in power. Um, and th- this whole episode is just the 
not just a Fire Nation school episode, but Zuko's speech. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> or even Ember Island later on when they're watching the play. Oh yeah, I heavily propagandized. Yeah, I the love that because they it's showing the way that like it's kind of similar to how Game of Thrones does this every once in a while. Well, they'll show like a play mm-hmm. of the popular culture events, and you know as the audience what really has happened because you have fourth wall breaking powers <laughs> but <laughs> the average person they don't know and that's why it's so fascinating to me reading about history that like even a hundred to two hundred years later right the the actual history of the thing that happened is nowhere close to what really took place like in the case of christopher columbus right yeah. and some of that is because of recent propaganda like or or, or so on and so mm-hmm. forth i i think it's very fascinating though like that that the show is like sort of tapping into okay you want to know what the fire nation or the general public probably in the fire nation thinks about ang right mm-hmm. oh they view him as this sort of young upstart effeminate boy right <laughs> they view toff <laughs> as this hulking you know giant of a monster right and it's just so you know and to add on to that i think um you know this is the culture that doesn't you know we have no social media in this culture this is like obvious, oh, yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. but i think it's one of the things where it's like it's the game of telephone. You know, the soldier tells his buddy, yes. who tells that buddy, who tells that buddy. Like, hey, this is what the avatar's like. And you get a distorted view, and thus that's kind of what gets recorded in history, whether it's a play, whether it's the actual history books. But that's how history worked back then, and that, you know, you see that with, uh, I don't know, every nation. Like, uh, I don't know the outside of this area that this is the bare basics I got but like you know when I was a kid I thought 300 was a badass movie I think we all did <laughs> uh, and then you kind of study of like you know like the, the propaganda of, of that type of history among the Greeks versus the Persians and you're like oh wow mm-hmm. this is really terrible because like Persia wasn't as bad as they make it out to be oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know they got rid of slavery way before Greece ever did yeah. Uh, and there was a lot more tolerance for like religious freedom, and it's like you know, as long as you serve the king, then you're fine. Th- that's uh, that's another one of those where it's like, I love that movie because it's showing the perspective not of oh hey, this is like a god mode. You're looking at this is what happened, like this is a historical drama. It's like no, this is the perspective of how the Greeks right would tell their story about what happened. Mm-hmm. Like e- we know from history that there wasn't just 300 Spartans. Yeah, that know? was like. Couple like, thousand. Yeah, it's just they stand out more because of like that kind of like oh that's like significant. Yeah. But that eventually the legend becomes it was only three hundred. Like no, it was like a good like sixteen hundred or something like that. Yeah, there was a couple. They had their slave helots with them. Yeah, they had a couple. You know, it, it's and there's so many different things like that that you can point to. Um, like even for example, the the War of the Three Kingdoms in China often gets romanticized. Oh yeah, yeah. So much so that when Total War was making right their version of Total War Three Kingdoms, they actually had to make two versions. One that is like, oh, this is the real version, and then this is the fantasized, ro- or they call ah. it the romanticized version, where mm-hmm. like one person is killing hundreds of people, right, kind mm-hmm. of thing, in, this, in a battle, and it's, it's, it's over the top, mm-hmm. right? So That's interesting. And, I, th- and I, I have yet to play Total War. This is a lot of games I haven't played yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There was something else that I was going to add. What you just said, uh, going back a little bit, you were talking about um, the. Oh, I, uh, you're talking talking about how history has changed, right, over time, and how people. Yeah, something like oh, um, what Chris and Brittany were saying regarding like the United States, and you know that that like uh, that romanticizing of like mm-hmm. the founding fathers, and like you know we were fighting tyranny. Like, mm, what a 
tyranny exactly. <laughs> but yeah, let, that that's propaganda that mm-hmm. they use. Well, like the Boston Massacre, like you know, only like what two only to three people, people died. yeah, eight people died. And it was like, oh my god, the it was like a shooting, and like oh please. But like for me, like when American history, you know, like movies like The Patriot, again, very kind of big propagandized movie. Yeah, it was yeah, more yeah. for money, but propaganda to think that this is what the British were like. And reading American the British history out there now, genociding, yeah, the col- like which never happened. <laughs> I mean, didn't happen as bad as that. But I think like, it just kind of makes me laugh about like American history in terms of like, uh, like you ever see the uh, that clip or that show uh, Newsroom. Uh, yes, I know what you're talking yeah. about. The clip where he's talking about is the America United is not States the greatest country in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> so he, he addresses the other guy. He's just like, you know, you're going to walk around saying, you know, uh, America is so star spangled awesome because we have freedom. And like he names off like the 50 plus countries that have freedom or 250 sovereign states. And the one thing I always found funny about American freedom that I that I used to be like, yeah, America. It's just like, yeah, we've like you look at other people that rebelled against the British Empire. It was because of uh, second class citizenship. It was because of um, you know kind of wiping out those people, whether it's through mass starvation, or taking their resources. And America's like, like yeah, yeah, America's all like, yeah, we don't want taxes. I'm like, really? That's why we're fighting taxes? I, I don't know. I just found yeah. it funny to me. The, the U.S. was one of the rare cases where the people who rebelled were not like some second classes and like in the case of India it was the oligarchy that was entrenched within the United States yep <laughs> so it was is that's why it was <laughs> one of the most successful because it's like they actually had strong sort of semi-centralized leadership at the time you know to do what they were gonna do yeah but th- and that's the other thing too propaganda it's like oh America didn't have a lot of resources and they didn't know how to do it I mean don't get me wrong their troops uh, compared to the British were not that strong in terms of like being in line but it was one of the things was like you make it sound like we're a bunch of ragtag militia groups like kind of like in the patriot yeah yeah uh, like <laughs> it's crazy or and they and did have a standing army yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, and another one that i actually recently read about was vietnam was i i was i, I read a biography uh well i'm sorry a historical account on white evangel evangelicalism in the united states uh for the past 80 plus years and one of the things they were talking about in the 60s and 70s was the vietnam war and how like american christians specifically white american christians like propagandists were like yeah we're fighting communism we're kicking their butts and when somebody would bring up the atrocities that america committed they would just immediately go around and be like well what about the Viet Cong? are we not going to talk about that like like that's Mm -hmm. not the point but (laughs) you're painting the country to be this you know cleansed purized like we can't do any harm to anyone when really our, our history has left a blood trail you know and the fire nation has done the same thing they've left a trail of blood for hundreds and hundreds for a hundred years um and and the funny thing is it always starts off with government i guess I, if, if i can be like if i could say that like you know with the it, in terms of like fire lord sozin wanted that type of power to control and to quote spread uh, their culture to where it starts up with a little bit of colonialism. Nobody really makes a fuss. And next thing you know, you're at war. You know, we saw that with Japan. Mm-hmm. We saw that with Hitler. We saw that with Russia to an extent. You know, so on and so forth. Uh, I talked a big game, but does anybody else have anything to add on to that in terms of the fine nation being? It's kind of like that I, meme. I Are we the baddies? I, yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> I still think it's super fascinating though that like the the mo- the the the, the show does a really good job of showing like the interpolitics of like oh Sozin and Roku and how 
Roku, because he had traveled, right, mm -hmm. he knew how the other nations were, how they would respond. And the, it's super fascinating that, like, Sozin didn't want to kick off his war because he knew the Avatar was going to clap him, right, if he tried anything. He, just in that, right, that show does a better job of explaining and showing why something like mutually assured destruction became, right, a doctrine within the, the actual world. Because Sozin knew, right, if he was going to do anything, the Avatar was going to be on him. He was the, the Avatar, mm. like, the nuclear option, right? And huh. it's only when the Avatar's gone, right, when the balance of power is imbalanced, right, mm. that well, And that's the whole to, point. He brings yeah, balance to the He brings to balance world. to the world, mm -hmm. right? And so it's, it, yeah. it, it kind of reminded me, now that you just said that, it kind of reminded me of, like, um, uh, when Hitler became chancellor, like, he was second in command next to... Um, Paul von Hindenburg, yeah, and Hindenburg kind of like he let him do what he, was gonna, he yeah. let him do what he wanted, but he also kept him in check. Yeah, and the moment he died, then Hitler's like, "All right, we are going in," you know, like crazy. <laughs> He's like, "Hey, check us the fuck. You look kind of tasty right now, <laughs> Austria. Oh man, we need some Lebensraum." <laughs> oh, that's terrible, but that's one way to put but it. I mean, it's yeah, it's basically what it did. Uh, does anybody else have anything to uh, add on before we? if we want to move into the next topic. Yeah, uh, I think that one of the other interesting things that came up in what a few of you have said is also where Aang comes in as a really unique protagonist because he is someone who not only is the most kind and compassionate and, you know, loving person, but he's also someone who's out of time. He is from a different world. He's from a world a hundred years past. And so his engagement with the Fire Nation is positive. It's coming from a, a background where it's having his friend Kuzan. It's Flamio Hotman, you know, it's all these other things where he's not coming in and seeing these people as enemies in even the way that Sokka is at the beginning of this episode. He is excited to meet people and make relationships and he, I think, helps to illuminate how this indoctrination, this propaganda that we've seen, the, the way that the Fire Nation has changed over the last hundred years, these have been purposeful systemic changes that are not just the natural cause of who the Fire Nation are. This is something that was chosen and brought on by certain people who are seeking power, and these are the methods they use to help consolidate that power within their country. And Aang just being who he is, being this friendly person who wants to share uh, relationships and build connections with everyone, I think is a really, really amazing character generally, and here in this episode in particular helps to to highlight those those interesting elements of the world of Avatar and where he fits in it. Yeah, that does change a lot now that I think about it. Because you, you kind of just get lost in the fact that Aang is 100 years old. You kind of just forget that. Yeah, he's like Captain America, <laughs> but Avatar version. Yeah, you know, 30 years more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, like, you know, trying to adjust. And, like, uh, like I don't think when he was alive, because uh, you have to remember, I think a big thing about the Fire Nation is that between those 100 years, it was, like, a lot of, like, um, what I would call their industrial revolution we see the drills, we see the tanks, we see the change in uniform. Kind of like when Sokka was in, in season one, where they're like, hey, we're going to infiltrate the Fire Nation by dressing like them. And Sokka's like, dude, your outfits are dated one like 100 years old. Oh, like, yeah. They no longer look like that. Um, 
And so it's kind of the same for Aang, where it's just like, you know, that kind of slang, that kind of where you're talking. It's just like, yeah, we don't, the kids even tell him, like, I don't know what you did at the colonies, but we don't do that either. Because uh, to <laughs> him, that was what they did in the Fire Nation back in the day. Uh, that whole dance episode, I think, was to me, is just like a big symbol of like freedom, I guess, like to, to, uh, to be who you are outside of what society, especially the government, tries to tell you to be. Definitely. Yeah, it's just beautiful. And then you have that snitch, like, you know. <laughs> like, there's always like, one man. There's always that one Chad who's just going to rat him out. Well, I think what you mean is the, the non-Chad version of those. Oh, okay. okay, yeah, the non-Chad, yeah. <laughs> For those who understand, that's a weird meme. I, I don't know how to explain it, so just go look it up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're going to jump into uh, part two, uh, the second topic of Katara and revenge of her mother's killer. And kind of segueing in from the Fire Nation, like, you know, her, she saw her mother die. Which, you know, I think for a kid's show, that's still really horrific. But, like, people like to bag on Katara. Like, you know, you constantly talk about your mom. You're so annoying because you bring up your mom. And at first, don't get me wrong, it was a funny meme. It would be like someone breathing, like my mother used to breathe. You know, something <laughs> like that. <laughs> uh, but you have to remember, too, because like we don't see it in the show. But she saw her, she probably saw the, um, her, her mother like just drenched in fire. Oh, yeah, probably still yeah, dying. Yeah, yeah. Burnt you know, burned to a crisp. You probably saw body parts, bones, organs. You know, flesh just kind of coming off. I don't think soccer was there exactly, but she saw probably what he never expected. So when she says that quote, um, you didn't love mom like I did, I kind of don't bash her as much for it because there are just some kids who have a stronger bond with their parents. Does that make sense? Yeah, or, or a particular parent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you look, I have something to say, Ari. Oh, no, for sure. It's just so, so heartbreaking, like, when she tells him that. And then, um, like, even Sokka confesses to Toph a little bit earlier in that season. He doesn't even remember what his mom looked like. Like, mm. I think he blocked out most of mm. the imagery of what he saw. And remember, she was the last person to see her mom alive. Then she ran out. She got her dad. And then it shows right up until they opened the hut, her and her father run in. So she saw like what that did that guy did to her mom and stuff he saw it and they probably kept Sokka out so he probably didn't even see like you know the the damages of their mom of what happened so she carries that with her very very much like you know not, not just being a daughter and that's her mom and like you know mother-daughter relationship but seeing that and living it where mm. Sokka was probably just kind of put on the outside yeah. a yeah. little bit you know protected from that hmm. And Chris and Brittany, do you guys have anything to add on to that or the or the whole thing of her revenge? Anything of that? Yeah, I think that for me, when looking at, at her revenge and, and ultimately her decision not to kill uh, Jan Ra, the, the, the general who killed her mom, um, you know, I think that it's interesting because we see her earlier attack a, a different general who she thinks is him and use bloodbending on him. And she realizes that it's not it's not the person that she's after. And, you know, we've already had the whole episode with Hama and how bloodbending is, is extremely powerful, but also very cruel. And I, I, I wonder if part of the decision that Katara makes not to kill Yon-Ra is due to her mistakenly using bloodbending on someone else beforehand. 
and kind of coming to the realization that she is invoking this cruelty at times wantonly because of her intense emotions. And And she's causing trauma in her pursuit of revenge. Yeah, exactly. And and trying to seek so-called justice for the person who caused her trauma. When she's with Hama... Uh, Hama like shows how you can like find water and everything and she kills all of those flowers to get the dew out and Katara's like well I mean yeah it seems great but like you know it also is really dark because you just you you just take life by you take the source of life and she probably did have that thought when she was using bloodbending on the original guy like you know to not become that there's a great Batman quote in um Crisis on Infinite Earth, I think that's what it's called, uh, or Crisis on Two Earths, whatever it's called, in the animated movie. Uh, so he's fighting the oh, the, I know the, this one, the yeah. Batman version yeah. of that world, Owl Man. And so before he wins, because Owl Man's like a murderer, and Batman's not obviously, unless you're Zack Snyder. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he he tells him, you know what, you and I are a lot of like when we we both did into to the abyss, but when it looked back at us, you blinked. In other words, he fell into that dark pit that you can never come back from. Because, yeah. like, it's that whole thing of, like, you know, once you take your first life out of revenge, then it's never going to satisfy you, and you're going to want more to where it takes you down this dark path. Well, yeah, it'll, it'll get easier. It's sort of... Yeah. Pulling, it's pulling from the original Nietzsche quote of, you know, if you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares into you. Which right. I love but that they, quote. Yeah. The fact that they adapted it for Batman, which is so good, right? Mm-hmm. And then bringing it full circle back to Katara, right? It's super fascinating that, like, she gets really close, mm-hmm. really close. But she comes face to face with it. But she's able to... She she kind of has a situation where she has the one ring in front of her, right? Man, we're just dropping in all the references here. <laughs> she's, she's like... Uh, it's like that scene where... Um, uh, what's her name in Lothorian is offered the one ring by Frodo, right? Oh, it's uh, sort of Lady the Gladriel. Lady Gladriel. And she's like, I could become this, 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 but I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And you know Katara really badly wants to do what she, you know, has been saying she wants to do. Yeah. But she doesn't. And that's a testament to her character, Will, and good character for her. That's really nice. I think the thing that really makes it stand out, though, is that a lot of people don't realize, like, Katara really is like she has sort of this sort of semi luke skywalker type setup right the hero's journey every every single Hmm. character has sort of a semi hero's journey going on but in hers it's very strong where it's like i saw my mother die in front of my face we've seen how luke responded right when he saw his aunt and uncle not direct like direct relative but not like parent die and he saw them die so we know katara saw that right and going from that to like it's understandable the justification for how she feels. Yeah. Right? Well, even then, to bring in another reference, uh, Magneto in X Men First Class. Yeah, there you he's go. given the same option to murder the man who murdered his mother, like literally an allegory. Mm-hmm. But he take he takes his life, and then he goes down this dark path of like, all oh, humans are terrible. To you become the very you know Obi Wan, you become the very <laughs> thing you swore <laughs> to destroy. Uh, revenge is just scary and i've never done it and i don't know what revenge is like like yeah sure i probably got revenge on my brother for doing something stupid but <laughs> you know uh like true revenge in that sense can just very like you know very damage your perspective of other people like those people you know you know um let's just use an example 
Uh, well, I mean, Katara does it with like you know, in a, she doesn't do it as much, but like she could have gone further to be like to be thinking mm-hmm. that all Fire Nation people are bad people. Like if somebody's son or loved one was killed by someone of a different race, and they take that grief very personally to where they seek a revenge, they're also going to get the idea like all people who look like that person are bad people. Yeah. You know, and that's how the hatred cycle starts. You do that to them, and then you do you do that to them, and someone's gonna get the idea of yeah. you, and they, you it's know, a it's a back and forth thing. A process of dehumanization of a group or people or thing. I think it's really interesting too that Zuko is the one that goes along with it, and it, it works as a double foil because hmm. up until then she has not really accepted Zuko. Right. She is one of the last people to be like, Zuko, you're part of the club now. You're part of Team Avatar. She's like, no, everyone else may like you. I don't like you still. I still and don't understand why people ship them, but whatever. I, so. I, I know. It, it's got some sort of hate relationship thing. I don't know. But, it, like, to have that go that way and then him being with her, right, mm-hmm. and him kind of acting as, like, I've been where you have been. Revenge will not get you what you are after, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's just so good. It's so good because it's, like, one character who has had that development helping another character. You know, it's, it's, it's politically beautiful. Another thing I really, really loved and enjoyed about the episode was that, like, you know, this whole entire time we hear that their mother, Kaya, died. We hear, um, like, you know, how sad she is. And then even Sokka, like, I'm sad, too, but I don't really have as strong a connection. And then in this episode, you see the exact same scene from three different perspectives, like, you know, retold Sokka telling Zuko in his tent, Katara telling Zuko from her point of view. And then when they confront the killer... And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, you're the little water tribe girl. I killed your mom. And him retelling her and even confessing why. It wasn't just, well, I'm going to kill the chief's wife and blah, blah, blah. It was because I came here with a mission to do. I'm here to wipe out the waterbenders. Hmm. And I thought it was your mom, but it was you. Like, if like if that was told to me and I was Katara, honestly, I would have staked him. Right. <laughs> I yeah. would have killed him. I would have killed him on the like spot. Vlad, like Vlad, Vlad the Impaler. Uh, Vlad the Impaler. Yep. Just would have done that, <laughs> left, and uh, there would have been nothing left of him. So I gave her so much strength for actually mm. getting a couple inches from his face to scare him of you have no idea how bad you messed up. And I think that uh, can also go back to, first off, beautiful and scarily poetic in terms of murder. Uh <laughs> But I, I think it can also bring that back to Iroh's quote to Zuko in season four. I'm sorry, season no, the season we never got. Uh, <laughs> season two, um, Zuko, you know, he's like, you know, I'm gonna capture Avatar. So I'm gonna regain my honor, you know, like he always says. And Iroh tells him, you know, even if you capture the Avatar, I don't think it's gonna go down the way you think. And then yes. Zuko's yes. like, then there is no hope for me. And he's like, you must never give in to despair. Uh, I can't remember what he says about despair, but it will take everything from you. He's like, in yeah. the darkest times, hope is what you give yourself. That's what's the meaning of inner strength. And you see that with Katara. You see her that, mm. you know, I don't know about the part of hope. May, and she probably has hope that things will change, which they do. But she's like on that pit of despair to where she's just ready to just go all in and just, you know, you know, we've all just literally talked about what like revenge doesn't bring peace, closure, or a sense of like things are right with the world. It's like no, you're just like everybody else now. Yeah. Um, and it, and it brings it back to that whole you mentioned that concept again of it's not going to go down the way that you think, mm-hmm. right? Breaking convention, but in a good way that's satisfactory. Mm-hmm. And it's like that's the thing with Katara, like you know like something is going to go down in this situation, but the fact that it works out the way it does, and then we get that poetic line where it's like, 
She's like, she wasn't the last water batter in the Southern Water Tribe. I was. You're just like, oh, man. Oh, crap. What have I done? Yeah, that was so satisfying and so scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Chris and Brittany, do you guys have anything to add? Yeah, I was kind of thinking about, like, I wonder if there's a connection between Katara and and her revenge plan and then in the moment deciding not to and then the several moments that she was there for Aang when he was so filled with sadness and anger, you know, when, when he found out that, yeah, the the air nomads had been all wiped out and then another moment when Appa had been stolen from him and you have these moments where he just goes into the avatar state completely loses control is being so destructive and she was the one who was there to like bring him down from that and to yeah like take his hand to say we are your family like let's hold on to the things that are good that are beautiful that are loving in the world and so I just I kind of wonder if there's a connection that she's the one who now is faced with a similar situation and then she you know in that moment is also strong enough not to um Mm. and almost like maybe she's had some preparation almost for that moment but through experiencing it from the sidelines and I also think that like it's just it is leading into this the final battle the Mm -hmm. final ending and the decisions that not only she makes I mean she could have killed Azula if she wanted to she didn't but the 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 battle between Aang and and the Fire Lord and him deciding not to kill um I think it yeah it's with the plot of that last season it's like her facing this yeah desire for killing destruction um and then it leading to Aang yeah having to find another way yeah i think just just going on on Brittany's point you know this uh i think this episode ends with zuko saying that ang you were right for katara's sake that she was you know she didn't need revenge she needed closure and 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 you know to to embrace and engage with her anger but what are you going to do when you face the fire lord and yeah it, it makes me not only think about that amazing ending of the show and, and really putting Aang's commitment to nonviolence to the test, which I, I really appreciate, but also how in regards to Katara being there for Aang when he was overwhelmed with his emotions, Aang's way of being there for Katara is is also helpful and caring but i don't think that he's there in the same way which shows the difference in their character where he offers his sage advice he offers the support of borrowing appa and he's not going to stop them from doing so but he's also going to tell her what he thinks is right and you know hope that she does the right thing as well um which is yeah just a a different approach to that whereas hers is, is i think much more about being there physically being there for him and showing her her affection and, and and her support that way his is a little bit more um moralistic and cerebral but still effective you too specifically you Brittany. uh when you said like you know holding on to the idea of family and i hope that's in it um we can segue this into the third topic but it's like <coughs> you know uh 
Christ constantly talks about like turning the other cheek. Uh, like the the um the the Jews at the time were like, you know, are you gonna like reclaim our homeland and like you know take down the Romans? He's just like, no, actually, they're part of the plan in terms of forgiveness for to come to heaven and. You know, you can imagine like someone would be like, wait, what? They've been enslaving us and ruling over us for X amount of years. You're just going to let them, you know, have the free card like that we would also get? Like, what? what's up with that? And then, uh, you know, we're just like, you're so consumed by revenge and vengeance and wanting things back to what they were supposed to be that you kind of forget that they're people as well. And that's, all, that's a very even deeper topic as well. But then you also, what you said, Brittany, was, um, you know, the hold on to help in terms of families like that. That verse, I think it's Philippians 16 or 18, uh, where he says, um, you know, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is good, whatever is pure, think about such things. Uh, and we're going to segue that into the final topic, which is about um, Zuko, Iroh, uh, according to the prodigal son. Uh, to kind of uh, summarize this for listeners, Zuko gives up his royalties and everything that he had once had and returns to Uncle Iroh. Uh, begging for forgiveness, you know, like literally on his hands and knees at this point. Um, and then, you know, he just grabs him by the shirt mid-sentence and just, you know, gives him the best dad hug I think all of us want. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he tells him, how could you forgive me so easily? And he says, I was never angry. I was sad because I was, I was afraid you lost your way. And, you know, but I found it again and you did it by yourself. Uh, and you know, connecting that with the prodigal son story, you know, the kid, the, the according to the prodigal son by Jesus, the kid goes off and spends frivolously what his dad inherited him, despite his dad saying like, "Hey, that's not all life is about." But you know, if you want to, you have the free will to do so. He goes, he finds out it's not what he wanted, it's not fulfilling, and he, you know, he kind of becomes scooped down to the lowest of the low, and then he comes back, and same thing, his father runs up to him, he kisses him, despite how dirty and gross he may be, and not even saying, I forgive you, or, like, I hope you learned your lesson. He's just like, kill the fattest cat we have, we're having a party, which sounds lovely, by the way. Um, and so, yeah, so let's just kind of break that down. I don't think it's necessarily a parallel, as more of a lot of characteristics that are involved. Um, but, yeah, let's just jump into that which by the way i think that story is in Jap in luke so have fun finding it because i don't know the verse uh, <laughs> <laughs> i think it's luke 15 11 through 34 now that i remember it all right all right you look like you got yeah. something to say i think it's honestly probably the most powerful to me or one of the most powerful moments in the show in general because mm -hmm. you see just how how far he's come from that little kid in the war chamber to i just want to make like you know this country great and like help out and you know on all that stuff to getting burned and outcasted and being kind of dumped on your uncle to babysit and help teach you as you you know completely leave your home country and all this crap and like uncle Iroh really looked at him as almost like a second son you know he lost his own and even in flashbacks and paintings and pictures you see how he and his son were playing with baby Zuko and yep. stuff and how he was really the dad parental figure in his life more than his own dad so to get that kind of betrayal from like, you know, someone that you consider a son, I know even though he doesn't really talk about it, you saw the hurt and the, the anger and the tears when Zuko would leave his prison cell, how he would just cry and cry because he thought, okay, maybe Zuko's alive and he got what he wanted, but I lost my other son too. 
Because mm. he's was, not going to uh, be the same, you know. It, it was a it was a second death because that's one of the things most. That's another thing that's so great about Avatar is just all these deep inner workings of familial relationships and character relationships. Iroh to his son who was lost and his viewpoint of having Zuko as his sort of second son. It's almost like you're saying a second death when mm. Zuko betrays him in the second season. Yeah. But when he comes back, it's prodigal son returning but it's it's also similar to like making whole right the mm. whole uh, concept of uh, shalom right and the idea of like for example the avatar is making things right again he's making bringing balance back to the world and one of those is in the way he brings balance back to zuko right do direct to him you know because whether zuko knows it or not his relationship to the avatar whether that be aggressively against him or helping him right him managing, and that's why that turn is so satisfactory because it takes three seasons of development, multiple episodes to get to that point in the third season when he's like, now I know what my purpose is. It's to help the Avatar, hmm. right? And you get, and it's just so good, you know? <laughs> and that brings it back to like the whole thing of his great-grandfather's yeah, uh, yeah. conflict with each other. Well, he could be like Avatar. He could be Sozin. I'm sorry, Philo Sozin. Yeah, yeah, and he kind of did act as if he was Philo Sozin by betraying him in season two. Yeah, yeah. But he had yeah. that second chance to go down the second route, which is to, you know, save, <coughs> save the Avatar. Uh, and there was something else that you mentioned, Arya, that I was going to pinpoint. Oh, like the the idea of the second death. Uh, in the last episode. Um, we were talking about pri- uh, Connor and I were talking about pride and humility according to Zuko and we were talking about Uncle Iroh and the one of the things we kind of summarized his relationship with Zuko as like a father figure is you know he has two ways of losing Zuko he could lose him like he lost his son or he could lose him like he lost his brother where he becomes consumed with power and control um, and I can't imagine he probably thought that when Zuko finally got everything he wanted back. He's like, great, now he's going to become no different from the past Fire Lords. And now I'm locked in a cell, and I you know, have limited control of what I can do to that. And even then, he still is able to talk to him when he visits him in prison on multiple occasions. Um, I just know. like the fact that we had that like workout montage. Yeah. It just gets Talk about a 180. Ripped. <laughs> So if you don't love me at my worst, you can't love me at my best. I'm just like, dang, wow, he's not wrong. Um, Chris, Brittany, what do you guys have to add to that? I'm so sorry. It was funny. Uh, what do you guys have to add to that? Yeah, I think that that for me, Iroh's, uh, you know, shunning of Zuko throughout the majority of the third season is less about his feeling of being betrayed by someone he cares for, which I I think affects him. But I think really it's about his sadness at Zuko's betrayal of what he thinks is right. And so I think it's, it's something that, you know, when he turns his back to Zuko, it's not out of hurt. It's out of, this is what he needs. This is, you know, I cannot support him. I cannot be there for him when he has chosen this path and he needs to choose the path uh you know the right path on his own um and yeah I... mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and i i absolutely love that which which is i think a place that it diverges a little bit from an idea of the prodigal son because like when Zuko first comes to him after the whole thing went down, he's in prison, he turns his back on him and he doesn't just 
welcome him into that space and I I kind of love that because that's that's a little more how I am but when when we were doing an episode about the idea of shame in in Avatar Last Airbender I I did a lot of research about I'm half Japanese so I knew some things but I did more research into Japanese and Chinese ideas of shame and some of it like in in the United States, we think about shame in terms of like individual shame and not in a more, a wider sense, in a more communal sense. And, and shame has a specific purpose in other cultures to help correct the, the bad actions, the incorrect actions, the selfish actions that people have done. And it is this no, you can't rejoin our our community until you correct those actions. And I think that's very much what Ira was doing there. And it was out of love. It was completely out of love. But it's saying, no, you need to look at what you've done. You need to change. And if you don't change, like, this is how our relationship is going to be. Mm. And, and and I but that's I think one of the things I love about Zuko and about this show is that Zuko I think has the best redemption arc of any character in any media because we see him struggle go back and forth you know throughout seasons of what path he's going to choose and to what extent and it's not until he makes the choice to leave his entire life behind and to do what he thinks is right. And he goes and he humbles himself first in front of the Avatar and then in front of his uncle. And he puts the work in, risks his life to protect those who he thinks, you know, need to do the work. He he challenges his father's ideals. He, he you know, he does these other types of real actionable redemption, uh, 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 you know, activities. He's not just saying, well, now I'm better. It's him actually putting the work in. And so when he comes into Iroh's tent and he humbles himself and he apologizes, and I'm guessing Iroh probably has heard about what's been going on, um, you know, he is welcomed back because he has made that choice. He's done those things and he has fulfilled what Iroh knew he had in him. And yeah, the scene makes me want to cry every time I watch it. Uh, <laughs> it's so beautiful. <laughs> Because it's just the culmination of this great journey that Zuko has, as, as Ari was saying. Yeah, uh, two things to add on to that. One, if Kelsey doesn't cry watching that scene, I'm like, what is this relationship <laughs> even? I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> and second, um, what was it? Oh, I think the other thing, too, that I liked what Zuko did. Like, he, like, corrected his wrongs in terms of he confronted his father, he left everything behind, he joined the group of the Avatar, you know. But he doesn't throw that before his father. I'm sorry, before Uncle Iroh in the sense of like, hey, I know I did bad things, but look at all these good things I've done. I've really changed. I'm ready to be your nephew or son figure again. He like knows that like no action or deed can undo any every any everything that I've done to my uncle. And so I'm not is you know, it's the whole thing of like I'm not even gonna flaunt that, hey, I've returned, hey, I I made the choice to be good again. You know, you see that in the prodigal son, too. He doesn't flaunt his father like, hey, I'm back. I realized my lesson and I want to come home. He says, mm -hmm. I have sinned against you and therefore I don't even be I'm not even worthy to be called your son like that. That in Zuka right there is like the epitome of 
what humility is. Like, you know, you don't put yourself down because like, oh, what was me? You you think le- uh, of yourself less to know um, that like I, despite everything I could do right again, even if it's just simply returning home, that doesn't mean I'm just going to get everything back to the way it was, you know, even if it's something. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. It's not like showing remorse for the purpose of repairing the relationship. It's showing remorse because he feels the remorse. It's it's not yeah. strategic. It's not for a specific end. It's just because he is so broken up over how he treated his uncle, which is so beautiful. And in both ways, whether it's religious or, you know, one-on-one with someone, that's what repentance really looks like. Like you acknowledge your faults, yeah. even if mm-hmm. you're not going to have the relationship back to the way it was, you're not going to get your titles back or whatever you had. You know, I think some of us, you know, growing up, we kind of act like children. I think Zuko kind of had that idea, like, all right, well, I learned my lesson. Can I have my stuff back, please? You know, like when he wanted to come back to his <laughs> father. And he realized that just how empty that type of forgiveness is. It's like, all right, well, you're back. You can have everything back. It's like, but it's almost like you didn't learn anything, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, before I keep going, does anybody else have something to add? I mean, I would, I would just say and point out, it's like, this is why the show is so good, right? Mm-hmm. Is it gets back to that whole concept of like, again, not how you think it's going to happen, but in a very satisfying way and in a way that is like it it actually feels very real and it works. Mm-hmm. And it, that's one of the things that like it, it from everything, in it, like from even like, like Pan Dao, right, to him working with Sokka to you know, him electing not to kill the avatar when all the other avatars are telling him to kill him. Right. And all these, it, it all points to this like concept of like, you know, this isn't how the path that you necessarily decided or chose, but this is the path that has become. Hmm. And this is the path that is the right path. Right. And so getting like, even in the case of Zuko, he thought the right path was to get back into good graces with his father to kill or capture the avatar. Right, mm-hmm. but no, it was it was actually to help the avatar, mm-hmm. and it ended up in a totally different place. Aang goes into it thinking, "Oh well, everyone's telling me I have to kill the avatar, or or sorry, kill the Fire Lord." I don't know how. Well, he almost <laughs> did kill the avatar too when he in second season, but he has to kill <laughs> <laughs> he has to kill the Fire Lord. But then he's like, "No, I I don't have to do that. I can. There is another path, right? Mm-hmm. One that is more, you know." different but satisfactory and to add on to that it's also like the same way zuko forged his own destiny yeah, so did Aang. Yeah. he didn't go he didn't do what the past avatars told him to and it's not like the past avatars were arrogant they were all acknowledging like dude we all failed to do what we should have done mm-hmm. especially roku and so like you need to be the change that we never could and but even with all that advice ang still you know forges his own path the best way he could and like he could have struck the fire lord down with that, that, that moment he like intercepts oh, yeah, lightning the lightning and then just yeah. lets it out the other way and the battle could have been won that would have been a sweet move but I you know when you it's one of the things that the kid you like just kill him there's so much damage and then you're an adult you're just like especially if you have a religious background you're like yeah this is a lot deeper than I think you think it is the, the other thing too just cause we gotta talk about the last battle of the season cause oh it's I'm just sorry yeah that's another thing <laughs> please <on>. the Aggie <laughs> Kai <laughs> just beautiful I was telling Ari when she walked in this is one of like the best final boss fights I've ever seen in the sense of like the color the music the the fight choreography 
the intensity that's built up for two seasons and maybe a season and a half if you want to include Zuko's flashback in yeah. episode 12 of season one. But this was just like, oh, and what, what were you telling me, Ari, that, that, that TV thing, the, the, that guy you saw on... Oh, that I guess there is some video right now going around on social media where this guy has an amazing living room set up with all these, I think, Panasonic lights or something, and they'll change colors based off of whatever's going on on the television. And someone mm. had them set up and choreographed to this Agni Kai between Zuko and Azula. And so his entire living room wall glows red when, she, when he shoots out his red fire and blue for her. And it's amazing. I, I can't get over how cool this guy's setup is. Mm. Yeah. It, uh, honestly, look, if you can find it somehow, look it up. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, we. I mean, we're going to jump on this topic just because we. I think we wrapped up the third topic pretty nicely. So we have like an extra half hour to talk about this. So, <laughs> yeah, let's go. Bonus topic, Agni Kai fight. My viewpoint, this is like I said in the opening podcast, this is one of the fights that I have watched over and over and over again because it's so good. It's not just the fact that, like, you know, as if Azula isn't powerful enough and as if, like, Zuko hasn't gained the full true firebending from the uh, the sun, uh, what sun the sun tribe. The sun tribe. Now we're even heightening up to, like, crank it up to 11 because with of the, the Sozin's Sozin Comet. So it's just going to be this... Amazing thing, which, by the way, one of the funny things I saw about this fight, I'm just like, you know, considering they live in the Fire Nation, this comet was coming, you didn't think to make everything around you fireproof? I don't know, everything's burning to a crisp in the Fire Nation without having this fight. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yeah. It's make such, everything metal. Yeah, it, it's such a beautifully done fight, especially with, I saw a TikTok about this, because I do that, and... <laughs> Somebody analyzed Zuko's fighting style that he he basically does a lot of uh, bending moves of the other uh, nations and puts it into his own practice. Interesting. Yeah. uh, One of these you actually... That has more to do with the animation. Because when they were doing the different, like, fighting techniques in the show, they were specifically drawing off of different actual martial arts to incorporate. Yeah, and it's this martial arts is like all over Asia, like which was incredible. Um, I did see another video on that, and like e- you even see it in season two, when uh, he challenges uh, Azula to an Agni Kai, and she's like, "No, no, thanks." He, the way he firebends by whoops, the way he firebends by lifting his hands up and pushing, it's a very water bending type yeah, move. Yeah. I was just like, that stood out to him. Like, huh, interesting. Uh, and in this one, you see, which, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've seen that, that video too, and I, I really appreciate it because it, I think, exemplifies the ways that Zuko and Aang mirror each other in a lot of really interesting ways, where Aang is the avatar who represents the, you know, the, the coming together of the four elements. And a lot of Zuko's journey is, I think, coming to terms with himself as as someone in a world, not just a member of the Fire Nation. And, and Iroh teaching him at one point, you know, how to how to maneuver lightning um using waterbending techniques and talking about how important it is to use these other kinds of bending. Uh, and so, yeah, I know you and your pre- past couple episodes, you've talked a lot about the ways that, that Zuko and Aang mirror each other and they have similar pasts and similar journeys that they've gone through. And, and I don't know if this would, if that was intentional for, uh, by the creators to have him do these, these multiple different kinds of bending styles or techniques. But I think that the fact that it exists and can be read that way shows just 
how well that narrative and that mirroring permeated throughout the show. And to add on to that, I, I mean, I think the funny thing is I've seen this before with different creators, uh, uh, fans would be like, is it true you actually did this because you took this from that? And they're like, no, we just kind of wrote it. So it just kind of played out very well that you would pick something like that up. Um, cause like, that's just the solid, that's just the, the beauty of good writing. It's like, sometimes you just write something so good. It's just like, Oh yeah, I did that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I always think of that stupid joke of like, you see in Star Wars, like, yeah, they were fighting and we were just filming the whole time. <laughs> that old joke. Uh, with, with this fight too, I think what was, was interesting. If you look at, this is the final fight between Azula and Zuko. And if you can contrast, compare and contrast it to their first fight on season two, episode one, it's a very like the tables have turned. Where Zuko is gets super tired out by Azula, she gets tired out. I mean, part of it's also her mental stability at this point, but she's just you know going hammering on him like with different moves, but that are more Fire Nation centered. Whereas Zuko is just kind of branching out, like, that, like freaking hip hop disco move whatever he was doing uh like bright dance move where he, like he like you know sweep, like the first moment i thought of that was um karate kid like sweep the leg kid you know? <laughs> uh you know and it's just so well done i think if it hadn't been for katara i think duko totally would have kicked her butt like just hands down and then and then that that whole inner fight within the agni kai fight azula versus katara like let's just jump on that versus for you you look like you got something That's, to say, Ari. Well, just kind of going back a little bit to where it was just with Zuko and Azula. This isn't just the final fight of their sibling feud. This is the fight for the crown. Mm-hmm. This for fight Nation, determines yeah. what direction the Fire Nation is going to go in as a whole. And in previous Agni Kais, as we know, the loser of the duel gets a burn mark somewhere on his or her body. Not this time. Not this time. Azula is going for the kill. And he even says, or she even tells him, I'm sorry, it has to end this way. And he just looks at her face and he's like, no, you're not. Yeah. Because he knows that she's going to get me. And he even told Aang one of the last times he saw him, you know, before he disappeared was, what are you going to do when, my, when you face my father? I think even though in his heart of hearts, deep, 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 deep down, he might still kind of reflect on that. You're right. She's my sister and I have to try to get along with her. Right, uncle? <laughs> but he probably went in there with the mindset of, I told Aang to take out my dad. Am I going to have to take out my sister too? Mm. And, and end this feud once and for all. And that's just such a climactic, like powerful, like how can you top that? You can't. Yeah, and it's yeah, just yeah. that who's going to win the struggle. And that just had me on the edge of my seat the entire time. Yeah. And I think another thing to add on to that is his sacrifice for Katara, like, you know, season one, Zuko would never do anything like that at all. He constantly put his crew and his uncle at risk in multiple situations where he's like, no, it's, I'm going to get what I want. I don't care who else dies. In this one, the crown doesn't even matter to him as more of like the, the, the fate of the world. Like, and you know, even what's his face? Uncle, I would tell him it's your destiny to take down your sister, but he does it with like the, the, the actual intention of bringing balance, not because I want the crown and he's willing to risk all of that for Katara, which in many ways he, um, uh, I think he, I guess you could say it's a repay for what she almost did for him. Well, like, yeah, I can heal your wound right now with this, you know, water, whatever, uh, from the, from the Southern pole, uh, from the South pole. And so he kind of returns that favor in the sense of like, yeah, you, you, you almost used this on me. I'm going to sacrifice myself for you type deal. Um, and, 
that whole fight in itself, you know, female versus female was just like so crazy. Because I think Azula, Katara kind of uses Azula's game against her in the sense of she goes in for the kill, but she does it in such an aggressive way, not out of like, because in the last episode we were talking a lot about um, she uses a lot of manipulation and strategy. This one, she's just going in with no strategy. So for Katara to kind of use this freezing move on her with ice water is something I would expect from Azula. And Katara does the exact opposite. And bonus for that is, uh, what's the name of the actress again? You know her. Gray. Gray. Gray Delisle? Yeah, I think so. Mm. Uh, she apparently um, had a lot of, uh, uh, when, when they recorded that final like scream that Azula gives when she's chained up, I don't know if this is true, but apparently the the record the recording staff had to walk out for her to record by herself because she was going she like pulled out trauma from her past. She did. She get this that. out. Yeah, like hearing that now, I'm just like that's freaky. She put her you know? whole heart and soul into this. This is like my favorite role of hers by far. You yeah. feel it. You hear it. I like oh, you get the chills of like what had she had to think of to bring this kind of rock bottom moment to Azula that made it so heart wrenching hmm. I, I can't imagine I don't even want to know at this point yeah. something better left unsaid <laughs> uh, Chris yeah I think like it's hard for me because the yeah that Agni Kai battle is just one of the most gorgeous things I've ever seen in animation and it's yeah it's it's amazing but there still is the we are on the border of falling into like potentially problematic tropes that we've seen in media where you have this powerhouse woman who is a villain and they they build her up so much and she's so powerful that it's like oh she has to now be mentally unstable for like like, she can't have that much power, which I think can be a problem. And I have seen several times in several different shows, movies, and whatnot. So I think it's bordering there, which is, it pains me to say, because it's like, ah, oh, I love the scene so much, and it's so beautiful. And I think it does make Azula a more compelling character, for sure, mm. than if she was just kind of stagnant. Um, but I think something really positive they, that they did do was she was taken out by another girl you know she is a girl she was taken out by a girl it wasn't she is so powerful more powerful than anyone and then like a boy comes in and and takes her out but so it's like they didn't ruin everything but but they were all on that line i think and by another if, product, if, I, hmm. if i could maybe add on yeah, to what exactly. you're saying as well i think the reason why it also is so weak is kind of similar actually to Daenerys Targaryen in Game of Thrones she has such a she's always been cold calculating throughout second season and third season right most mm -hmm. majority all the way up to Boiling Rock right so to see her have this sort of mental collapse in the last like five to six episodes she doesn't even go crazy like until like lead up into the final episodes for me that was if there was one there there are very few things but there are a few <laughs> that i would change for season three of avatar season three and one of those is i would have just kept uh the characterization and personality of azula 
very straightforward. She still would have been cold and calculating, right? Mm. And and that way you're it actually makes the victory for Team Avatar feel more like more impressive, more f- like one because it wasn't oh I, we beat this person who's half crazed and is clearly you know personality wise falling apart right it's like no no this person they want the fire the the title fire lord right so that that was that'd be my one change on but your one change my one change yeah huh interesting yeah okay but that's one way to look at it it, honestly even just from like a 500 like foot view like looking down on everything it's so crazy how well the f- that those final four episodes work in terms of like giving everybody something to do mm-hmm. Aang's fighting the fire lord the rest of team avatar with the white lotus crew is ta- retaking the earth kingdom with boomy and stuff and then um suki and um toff and sokka are taking out the airships and then uh katara and um Zuko. Uh, Zuko are taking on Azula. So there's all these different plot point fights and they mix them in so well. So it's just like you're going in between all of them and it's just like, oh man, yeah. so good. Kind of felt like I was watching a graphic novel come to life in a sense. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. going off those multiple story arcs. Yeah. Um, I, I, didn't, I never really noticed that regarding what you said, Brittany, about the, the, the female trope of villains. I've, I actually want to look that up now because I. I'm more curious about that. Um, I saw, no, not for this podcast, but uh, about a year ago, I saw an hour, like almost an hour long video on the psychology of Azula and like how it all started from her childhood. So, I, I mean, I can give the writers some respect to that. Uh, sorry, that was my phone. That um, <laughs> was Overwatch. Uh, I can gi- I can give the writers respect for like, you know, kind of building it up in her character since the ground up. Though I do kind of agree to an extent of what you're saying, Brittany. And I think another thing I, I think I would also change about Avatar, not necessarily about season three, but the entire show, I, th- I felt like Aang having the no killing rule was shoved at the last minute because I'm like, Aang, you have killed people. <laughs> like, you've killed a lot of people. Like, all these soldiers that, like, you know, you, like when they're fighting in the Air Nomad Temple, you drop them off the cliff. Mm-hmm. All of those that you were fighting in the water trap in sub-freezing temperatures, or all drowning. when he turns into the giant, uh, at the end of season one, when he turns into yeah. the giant ki- water kaiju, that that is actually one of the things that I think is very much also they could have done a slightly better job of developing it but they did have like in the beginning of season one we're already seeing ang having remorse for something that happened in the finale of season or sorry uh, beginning of season two we're seeing him having remorse for stuff he did in season one finale Mm. as a kaiju where he's looking at it from the perspective of the fire nation soldier getting just crushed by a giant water kaiju so stuff like that is like Okay, I can see where they're kind of going, but I also know, oh yeah, this is a kid show; they can't kill somebody else. Right? No, of course. I think it's just I, I wish they made it a little bit more noticeable yeah. because <clears throat> when I first saw it, I was just like, "Wait, what? You have a where did this come from? Like, you know, killing rule. <laughs> well, like, let's just pack up all the body back. Let's just you know count up the body count. Is your like, secret name Bruce Wayne, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like, think I, I feel like it was the the Kyoshi Avatar that you know took over him and <laughs> did all the killing. Go ahead. That's funny. No, I I do remember having a conversation very similar to this with another friend, and it's funny how Aang kind of, or maybe it was you, Trey, online, it's funny how Aang kind of cherry-picks what little Air Nomad um, rules or, you know, kind of 
um, morals he stands by and which ones he doesn't, you know. And this is kind of one of those to where it's like, ing the fate of the world. Another, you would prevent another genocide or risk that maybe happening again to Earth Kingdom citizens just because you want this kind of enlightenment thing. Mm. When even another Airbender avatar, Yang Chen said, "I know you're sweet, but just do it. Just do it. Just, just do it." Like. I mean, I'll be honest, I would have done it. Like, mm. if it means that I would have protected millions and mil- a couple billion people from being burnt to a crisp like Katara's mom, I'd do it again and again. Mm. Like, and then, you know, do prayers and stuff after. Like, you know, <laughs> you have to do what you got to do. And unfortunately, yeah. you're the avatar and that's your job. <laughs> and in my mind, it's like, yes, I've read the comics and I kind of like, I know what's happening, you know, in Fire Nation and some things afterwards. But who's to say? that sometime after that as long as he's alive and he has followers there's always going to be that group of like you know fire nation nationalists or purists or whatever that are always going to side with him over zuko or even him over zula or anyone because he's still living and breathing well not to mention that that actually is if we're like talking real world politics there's no way uh, ozai lives No, (laughs) And, and, (laughs) and to add on to that like this also like you know um Ozai, to an extent, is kind of seen as like a god in a sense. Not he's not oh, yeah, he's, he's not worshipped, but he's like a deity to these figures. Yeah. Again, going off of Japanese culture and history, but um, you know, it's one of the things when you take out the leader, everything else falls apart. It's like you know, when you destroy the idol that they have, they have nothing left, and so they have no choice but to, you know, move on and you know, hopefully forget their sins of the past. Kind of like what we saw with Hitler. Now, granted, Hitler didn't was it killed but he was he did kill himself and you saw that with Italy where Mussolini was killed and like now mm-hmm. fascism in both countries is illegal to a large extent mm-hmm. yeah. and, and they've washed away that past compare that to you know now granted it's a you know there's a lot that plays into this but I'm just looking at face value right now Co- like contrast that with like you know American troops not you know putting uh, confederates on trial for like you know in terms of giving them the death penalty they gave them like hey we're gonna you know you're gonna serve a sentence but like what happened after that There's all these monuments that people still follow the oh, confederates yeah, yeah, yeah. stayed up and now it's affecting us affecting us to this day you know when you take up when you cut the head off unless you're hydra when you cut the <laughs> head off the body falls apart mm-hmm. so and and that's another one of those two where you get back into the whole like People forget, man, that there's basically what there's been two to three versions of like fr- bringing like around to oh the phantom of the past coming back of like the KKK. Hmm. So people forget the first KKK was wiped out by Grant. Like they they yeah. went roughshod on them, and but it got resurged because of sympathetic people like Woodrow Wilson and later on at the turn. Who of the was century. the KKK? He wasn't he wasn't a KKK member, but he was oh. sympathetic. And he he okay, reinstituted um, like segregation throughout the federal service mm. system, which was crazy because even at that period it was like whoa. But uh, going back to um, Avatar, right, with like Ozai and all of that, right? I thought it was super like we never would have gotten that really great visual, right? That's what I, I always think of. It's like yeah, he could have killed him, but we never would have gotten that great ending shot, which kind of bookends in my opinion the the visuals of the series with him doing the thumbs on his head and then we get that cool shot of the blue like yeah. light going into the sky and it like we see the the show start with the image of the avatar awakening and the light shooting into the sky like, ah. and, and so then you get that at the end also of the series when it's such a great visual metaphor where it's like if you better be careful that his like 
his energy doesn't overpower you and it gets that last little light on egg and then it just and he changes it and, it, and all of a sudden the avatar music comes back and you're like oh man like, and the soundtrack is so oh, good so good dude it, that, that's the thing that no one talks about the, with this show is like the visuals are great the acting's great the animation's great but the soundtracks oh soundtrack is so good the score yeah jeremy he did an amazing job i'm still waiting for that cd by the way yeah like even in just the first episode when the uh zuko fights ang in his room it's uh it's just so oh it's so good or when he fights uh uh zuko fights uh admiral zhao like the music just intensifies and then the one with with uh Azula and Zuko is just you know just the violin and everything. Just like or or there's even little setups too, like for example the music. Yeah, you get that. Normally that's playing as like oh that's background music, but when they go to the Sun Temple, right, the people there are playing that music, ah, and I was like oh this is such a cool like lead in all of it. Well, even like um in some of Zuko's cases. You kind of hear like that horn blowing, doo, doo, doo. but that's actually something Uncle Ivo played when he was wearing the blue mask and the blue spirit mask and oh, everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we got uh, like a minute or two, so like Chris, Brittany, anybody else, you guys have something to wrap up, like that you wanted to get out but forgot about or anything of that sort? Please, whoever is listening to this, if you are an executive at Netflix, please, for the love of God, make sure it's good. Because <laughs> if we have to live through <laughs> another live-action remake of Avatar and it sucks, oh my gosh. I, I don't even care because like now that Avatar Studios is coming back with more content, yes. I'm like, yeah, forget the movie. We're getting more content. Movie what? Show who? <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> oh my God. I, don't, I mean, I don't really trust Netflix with their adaptations anyway. We all saw Death Note. <laughs> that wasn't fun. But they did better with The Witcher, though. That's what I've If heard. you've read the books and the, the video games and everything like I have, like, okay. okay. But that's, okay. I, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that creators, they knew what they were doing. And also, how can you not love Henry Cavill? Henry, Henry Cavill is just, oh, man. <laughs> what he, a beefcake. He demanded, he demanded that they give him the bathtub scene. I was like, really? this, yeah, because he's a gamer. He almost missed his call back for Superman because he was playing uh, playing <laughs> World of Warcraft. <laughs> so he's played the video games. He's read all the books. So he oh was God. like, if they were going to not have that scene in there. And he's like, no, no, no. You have to have a tub, and I have to be sitting in such and such a way, and we have to shoot it like that. He couldn't get exact, obviously. Yeah. But that's hysterical. Oh, my God. He's carrying it. He's carrying that show. He's like, that I'm so proud. Just, he, he is the true gamer. The true like oh, embodiment of, of gamerdom. As an actor, he's my hero. <laughs> uh, Brittany, Chris, you guys have anything to add uh, before we wrap up? No, just this was so much fun. Uh, thanks again for having us on. Uh, and yeah, if, if people like hearing about Avatar The Last Airbender, this is one of the properties that we cover about once a month on Geek Between the Lines, and it'd be great to have some, some crossover there. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and before we wrap up, just want to say, uh, Brogan, uh, Ariana, thanks for joining us. Uh, Chris and Brittany, thanks for joining us. Uh, for those who want to know more about Chris and Brittany's podcast, Geek Between the Lines, you can find them online. I believe it's www.geekbetweenthelines.com. Is that correct? Bit.ly slash geekbetweenthelines. 
what he said. Uh, sorry, I, forgot, <laughs> I, I I had that in my head and I all of a sudden lost it. So, but I will definitely put. <laughs> no worries. No, gotcha. I will definitely put that in the description if you guys want to find their podcast as well. You can follow them on social media at Geeks uh, Geek Between the Lines. Uh, for, and yeah, thanks so much for joining us. If you like what you hear. And go to www.tvtraypodcast.podbean.com uh, for more content, uh, including the past Avatar episodes we've done. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TV Trade Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us.